If you want to support this podcast and get a full ad-free episode, sign up to Headstuff Plus. I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. Stories of the fiction that shapes popular culture. I was scrolling through Twitter a while back and I stopped on a particularly good piece of Twitter fiction. It was a story from the wonderful account Micro SFF by uh, writer O. Weston, who writes short science fiction and fantasy stories. Very short stories. Each one is just a single tweet in length. Around the same time as this, I was re-listening to a great short story by the Irish writer Colin Walsh. Listening, rather than reading, because this was a story broadcast on RTE, Irish Public Radio, as the winner of the RTE Francis McManus short story competition. And it got me thinking about short stories more generally, because here were two very different pieces of fiction. One, an incredibly brief piece of microfiction, ephemeral in the way that all tweets are, I suppose, but so arresting, a beautiful, thought-provoking pause in the endless feed of social media banality. The other, Walsh's story, is a much longer piece of fiction, just under 15 minutes when performed on radio, and written, in this case, to be read aloud. So, when I decided I wanted to make a podcast episode about the short story, I was thinking about the bigger questions. You know, what makes a truly great short story? Who are its most celebrated practitioners? And perhaps most importantly, what can short stories do that other forms of literature simply can't? And I will get back to these questions, but before getting to any of them, I realised I had to consider a simple question that I think almost every individual reader has a satisfactory answer to, until you kind of start trying to tease it out a little bit. What is a short story? Well, I'm Dr. Paul March Russell. I'm a lecturer in comparative literature, and I've worked on the short story and on science fiction. I call Dr. March Russell because he is someone who has thought a lot about this question. He has also, among many other publications, written a great book about the short story form. So how does he think about it? I think people have a a certain kind of ballpark definition. So I think people tend to think of it's going to be short, therefore it's probably going to be, you know, something up to, say, 20 pages, not much more than that. People tend to think that it's going to be um, uh, kind of very, you know, obviously kind of truncated. Not not everything will be clarified in a short story. There'll be a lot of questions left hanging. Um, people might think think of the short story will be very um, impressionistic or focus upon a very specific situation or very specific character, uh, a very specific context. So I think everybody will have their own kind of working definition of a short story, but there is no agreed, absolutely all-encompassing definition. So a lot of scholarship in the field of short story studies is taken up with attempts at deciding what exactly everyone is studying. Although it should be said that this is not all that unusual. This tends to happen a lot in the humanities. Of course, Dr. Marge Russell, like anyone else working in the area, has his own ideas and his own approaches to the short story. The book I wrote on the short story about 10 years ago, I did uh, two things. One, I thought about the short story as a fragment, so thinking back to kind of romantic aesthetics in, in, that, in that regard. And the other thing I used was uh, an idea from Walter Benjamin, where he refers to the notion of a constellation. So you think of the short story as something which is made of lots and lots of little multiple bits, uh, rather than anything that kind of coalesces into one whole thing. If you look at it from a distance, we can call it a constellation. Up close, it's just a whole myriad of th- things. And I think that tension you know, underlines a lot of these attempts to define the short story. Um, so, yeah, I don't really have the working definition as such, but I 
tend to think of it as something very fragmentary, very provisional and very mutable. So a couple of things emerge from all of this. It's not really possible to precisely define what the short story is. You can say what it isn't, you know, it's not a novel, it's not a poem and so on. But not with any degree of finality what it is, and it can shift and change. I mean, the length is obviously important, it's a short story, but that's not always that helpful. The lower limit might be as little as a tweet, and the upper limit could be 20, 30, 40 pages. At some point, it turns into a novella, but, you know, there's no precise moment when this happens. But the short story is different to a novella, to a novel. It has a different place in literary and popular culture. There's a different approach, a different focus, a different feeling. Maybe I need a writer's opinion here. Like poetry, of course, there's a, there's an element of brevity uh, and uh, vividness and intensity of language. Like, um, I, I mean, I, I, I would often think that the short story is, is a, in many ways much closer to poetry than it would be to, uh, to long-form fiction. This is Colin Walsh, whose story I mentioned earlier. He's an Irish writer, originally from Galway, now living in Brussels, whose literary accolades have been piling up recently. Winner of the RTE Francis McManus Short Story Award in 2017, winner of the Doolan Flash Fiction Prize 2018, and most recently, the Hennessy New Irish Writer of the Year 2019. There's a degree of intensity to the language. There's a real absence of, of any kind of fat, um, you know, like, uh, you could, like novels, there is a certain allowance for a kind of bagginess, uh, longers and detours. Uh, with a short story, really, it's it's all muscle. Um, it's, uh, you know, not wanting to kind of, there's a lot of machoism in talking about short stories as well. Uh, I don't know if it's an inferiority complex or something, but um, but like there, there are no baggy beast short stories. I mean, I, I remember Anne Enright once describing McGahern's short stories as being like a hand grenade rolled across the kitchen floor. And with the short story, really, there's that kind of, um, there's a potency in them. Um, and I think, which you would find in poetry also. I love that image, a story like a hand grenade rolled across the kitchen floor. Because there's definitely a tension to great short stories, and I'll come back to that in a little bit. So, if we can't really all agree what exactly a short story is, but we're all pretty happy we know it when we see it, has this always been the case? Well, the actual term short story, used in the way we understand it today, was only coined in the late 19th century, um, probably in the US, but scholars don't fully agree when and where. And, of course, there were lots of stories which were short, long, long before this. I mean, you can go way back, if you like. So people tend generally to go back to the oral tradition and think about things like the fable, the parable, uh, riddles, um, so all the way back into, um, uh, you know, you, you're going back to some of the kind of early classical epics, ancient epics like the Epic of Gilgamesh, um, Ovid's Metamorphoses, which of course is, you know, one thing is a much larger narrative, but made of lots and lots of little kind of short incidents, short little tales. Um, people tend to focus upon, very much upon the, um, the, the kind of short story collections, what was then known as novellas, which were really kind of miscellanies of short stories. So most famously in the British context, of course, the Canterbury Tales. So, um, and then in, the, in Europe, you'd be looking at Boccaccio's De Cameron. So again, those kind of framed narratives, you've got an overarching frame narrative, pilgrimage from London to Canterbury, in which tales are then told along the journey. Um, so people will look upon those kinds of uh, 
folk tales as he turned into printed literature in the course of the 14th, 15th, 16th centuries. Then you've got another very important type of short literature developing in the 17th century, the fairy tale. You've got uh, tales being derived from popular folk sources, but then being kind of streamlined, rationalised, written up and addressed to a very aristocratic audience. Obviously, this is the aristocratic families with young children who need to be instructed and taught not to go off with uh, wolves and so on. Um, <laughs> so the fairy tale is actually really important because you've kind of got this real tension between ancient oral culture and then kind of modern printed literary values as well. Um, what comes out in the early 19th century uh, or late 18th century, religion part of the Mantic movement is this uh, notion in Germany of the Kunstmachen or the art tale. And so there you have now uh, tales which are being written, which are original, which are authored. So the works of people like Hans Christian Andersen, for example. Um, but they're being invested, those stories, with moral purposes or satirical purposes or artistic purposes, as in, say, the fairy tales of Oscar Wilde a little bit later in the century. And the art tale becomes, formally speaking, the place where something like the short story we know it now begins to emerge. So, again, a key, a key crossover figure would be something like Nathaniel Hawthorne in, in the American context, where he's drawing upon lots and lots of folk material, you know, don't go in the woods because there might be a witch's coven. Um, so, uh, but then using that material for, again, moral purposes, satirical purposes. Um, and so that's, that becomes the kind of, the, 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 the kind of me immediate precedent to the short story that we know today. So there are lots of reasons for stories to be short. One, as we've heard, is in children's tales. You know, young children have limited attention spans. Stories can only be so complicated and so long. But another usually important reason for short stories to be short was the rise of print journals and magazines in the 19th century. Stories were short because of space. I mean, if you want to fill a magazine with a variety of fiction, there are practical and commercial considerations. When we think about the short story, we can't separate out from those major economic shifts in 19th century industrial and cultural production. Um, it's, I mean, a, a classic moment is actually, you know, in this kind of famous letter from Edgar Allan Poe to his friend uh, Charles Anstrom in 1844. And Poe says, I, I realise that the whole busy, energetic spirit of the age tended wholly towards the magazine literature. And, you know, you think in the context that you're thinking, that's just kind of crazy because, you know, we're, we're, we're taught in terms of the 19th century, in terms of, you know, the huge novels like War and Peace and uh, Middlemarch or Moby Dick or whatever it might be. And Poe's are saying, no, 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 that's not modern. What's really modern is this short magazine literature that absolutely says is there to fill space in all these emerging magazine titles um and there may be tales of terror tales of sensation um but actually that's what that's modern because very because of the the the, the, the nature of an accelerated speeding up um, ever more busier society. We just don't have time to read Walter Scott, is kind of Poe's point, really. Yeah, there were whole new demands for all types of literature, and especially short literature. This was the time, for example, when commuting by train was becoming part of people's working routines in cities. Up until now, there hadn't been this demand for short stories to pass the time on a daily commute. And so, as the 19th century wore on, the short story emerged in the way that we recognise it today. 
earlier in the US where there was a strong magazine culture and you had writers like Poe and Melville and Hawthorne, a bit later in European countries, but by the end of the century, some of the great classics of the form had been published. Stories by Guy de Maupassant, the French master of the form, Anton Chekhov in Russia, in Britain, H.G. Wells's first science fiction stories, Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes tales, for example, and lots and lots more. By the 20th century, two things began to happen. On the one hand, some of the greatest short stories of all time were written. Modernist masterpieces, magical realism, classic detective fiction, realist and non-realist, genre-defining works of science fiction and horror, and lots, lots more. But on the other hand, the novel cemented its position as the most highly regarded form of literary expression. It's fair to say that for most writers today, if you want to be critically and commercially successful, you need to write novels. So, why is this? Well, there's definitely a sense, for publishers at least, that writing short stories is a sort of apprenticeship, a training ground before the novel comes out. So, I mean, that, that, that is always the received wisdom of publishers. And, um, you know, booksellers say, well, we'd love to have more short story collections out on our shelves, but publishers don't publish them and, and so on and so on. Um, whether or not that's actually true is another matter. I mean, certainly... Over the last, say, five years in the UK, we have seen a steady rise in the sale of short story collections that is emerging something more like a market for short story collections. Um, but it's, it starts from a very low base. Um, and so publishers still are very wary to put out a short story collection, especially if it's a, the, the work of a, of a first time writer. This isn't unique maybe to writing. As a film director, for example, you can make short films, but the studios ultimately want a feature-length film. For better or worse, very few people go to the cinema to see collections of shorts. I was obviously keen to get a writer's take on all of this. As Colin Walsh was happy to note, short stories are used in creative writing courses and workshops for the very practical reason that you can get feedback on a piece of work in its entirety, rather than presenting sections and segments of something larger without that context. However, that was the only real concession to this idea. There's a sort of widespread general sense, uh, you know, among like, publishers in particular that short stories are kind of a you know a training ground or a practice before you know you actually do the serious work of, of writing a novel I mean with all, with all of these things you always have to kind of question uh, who's speaking and from what perspective are they speaking about this um, so very you know that 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 image of the short story is a kind of training ground or practice for the novel is uh, you know it's based on publishers because you can sell novels much more easily than you can sell a collection of stories. Um, that's just the nature of the way the publishing world works. Um, the novel is more culturally valorized for whatever reason. Um, and uh, there's a kind of, um, when you boil an art form down to its most commercially, you know, viable uh, incarnation or whatever, then I guess the short story will always come off as a kind of the, the lesser, the lesser child, or something, um, in comparison to the to the novel. And the problem is that the, the short story is always uh, is generally viewed from the outside by people who aren't familiar with short stories or people who aren't interested in short stories as being kind of um, an an unambitious, you know, form of the novel, as opposed to its own form, which exerts its own demands and. Uh, you know, I mean, again, this machismo thing, you will hear a lot of people who write short stories saying, you know, uh, well, actually, I think short stories are a much more difficult form than a novel. And, you know, 
I mean, I, I wouldn't have much truck with like that thing either. I don't think it's like that one thing is a superior art to the other or more demanding, you know, that changes from writer to writer. But I definitely think that um, this idea that the short story is just a training ground, you know, it's, it's just, it just doesn't hold up to any scrutiny for anyone who is actually... Uh, who who investigates the short story for themselves. So, publisher and market demands aside, what makes a truly great short story? Well, for Dr. March Russell, it's about tension. A tension between clarity and obscurity. Let me explain. If you're writing a short story, as has already been noted, there's no room for bagginess. It's all muscle, no fat. There's no room for the tangents or diversions you might find in a novel. So you write something, and then you edit and edit, you reduce it and rephrase it and clarify it. Every word counts, and so the story is moving towards this absolute clarity in terms of what the author is trying to say. But then, on the other hand, every time you remove something, and in a short story, so much is cut out, is gestured towards, or suggested but not expressly included. Every time you remove something, then the story becomes more and more obscure. The best short stories, at least according to Dr. Marsh Russell, have this perfect tension between clarity and obscurity. They are perfectly clear in what they say, even if what they say is quite obscure. So, you know, if you think about that, then you kind of come into, uh, I suppose, what people tend to think of as the kind of impressionistic short stories. So thinking about the kind of uh, the great sort of uh, pioneers, the short European short story in the 19th century, like uh, Guy de Maupassant, or Gustav Flaubert, or Anton Chekhov. And then coming through to people like James Joyce and Catherine Mansfield. I mean, um, you know, Joyce's Dubliners remains an absolutely kind of you know benchmark text for all sorts of later uh, short story cycles. And of course, there's now a, a huge kind of uh, you know, critical reevaluation and industry around the work of Catherine Mansfield. You know, I think has come forward as being absolutely one of the most preeminent uh, modernist writers of her period. Um, but then, having said that, there's there's also that kind of strange tendency, strange tension, because we come back to the commercial origins of the short story, and actually, well, hold on a minute, you find those that similar tension between clarity, obscurity, questions left unanswered in writers like, say, Rudyard Kipling or M.R. James. Um, so writers like that, um, and of course, they're actually mass- massive influence upon um, postmodern authors like Jorge Luis Borges, and you know, Borges's influence has been just so widespread amongst so much contemporary short fiction. So I think that's some of the kind of key figures that I would uh, draw attention to. And there are things that short stories can do that novels simply can't. If we were to talk about things that it can do that maybe a novel can't, I think there's, there's, a, there's room for a, a certain form of experimentation within the short story form that I think that if it was, if it was carried over into a novel a lot of the time it would just become uh, unsustainable or gimmicky. For example, I mean, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, there's a, a great collection of short stories that was published uh, last year um, by the Sting and Fly Press called Sweet Home by a Belfast writer named Wendy Erskine. And she has a short story in that book, um, which is uh, about a kind of Sid Barrett type, uh, you know, um, musician from the seventies uh, named Gil Courtney, and it's written in the style of one of these kind of um, 
these listicles that you would have gotten back in like Smash Hits magazine, you know, like uh, 20 facts you didn't know about, you know, whatever. Uh, and um, and it's basically, it's uh, 77 facts you didn't know about Gil Courtney, I think is the title. And the, and it's just a list. The, short, the, the story is written in the form of a list of just biographical details about him. And within like, you know, five, six pages, you get this hugely rich, um, yeah, like a just portrait of a life and uh, and the context within which it happened and all of these kind of slippages and movements that happened in this life that happened in between almost the bullet points of these sentences. Um, and you, you couldn't do that in a novel. You couldn't sustain that in a novel. Um, you know, it would just, it, it, the I think the, the urge for a kind of uh, linear narrative drive would become too strong after, you know, the first like 300 bullet points or something. So it, just like in terms of like what you can do with a short story, that the brevity lends itself very well to achieving certain things that a novel uh, can't. But also I think, you know, that feeling when you finish, when you finish a novel, especially when you finish like a, a really good novel and, at least I get that feeling, you know, when you read like the last page of a book and there's this kind of, you know, I don't know what, it's like It's like your body is a pool through which some kind of weight has been dropped and, you know, something kind of quivers in you and then you just sort of stay with that and like allow it to settle. The short story kind of, I think, really delivers that and it delivers it like, you know, with a great degree of intensity because it usually ha happens to you in the course of, of one sitting, generally speaking. Um, uh, like the, the short story, I don't know. Um, I mean, you know, there's all these cliches about short stories just uh, in, a, in their traditional form. They're kind of like these vessels of epiphanies. But, you know, the, that, that kind of feeling of being sort of shaken uh, inside, at least for me, um, you get that a lot from the short story because of its compression, because of its intensity. In the way that with a novel, you know, a novel ebbs and flows, but a short story... Um, it's really driving, you know, it's a, a, a short story really drives somewhere uh, and, 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 and it goes there deep. And what sort of stories give you that depth of feeling? What, what makes a great short story? There are kind of obvious canonical figures like, um, you know, obviously Chekhov and Joyce and Flannery O'Connor, um, Alice Munro, uh, Joy Williams, uh, Claire Keegan, um, Mary Gateskill, like uh, her book, Bad Behaviour is amazing. Um, but then, you know, you've got people like, like Grace Paley, she's an amazing short story writer as well. Um, um, like in terms of uh, contemporary writers, um, there's a Welsh writer, um, Tom Morris. He published a collection a few years ago called, uh, called We Don't Know What We're Doing, which is just an, an excellent collection of short stories all set in, uh, in, in his hometown in Wales. Um, basically, any, any, anything that's been published by the Singing Fly Press, um, you know, they, they publish collections of short stories. So, you know, this is like uh, Kevin Barry, Colin Barris, Danielle McLaughlin, um, Mary Costello, uh, Wendy Erskine, who I mentioned earlier. Um, their most recent book is by uh, Nicole Flattery, uh, Show Them a Good Time, which I think is actually, um, if anyone's, you know, interested in looking at something that's really, um, you know, it, 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 they're, they are recognizably short stories, but they're really, um, you know, uh, how would I describe it? It's sort of like... Um, it's really bending your mind into mad shapes, <laughs> um, 
with, uh, she like she's really doing really interesting stuff with the form um and i guess like maybe uh, if i was to name just two other favorites um there's a, an american writer named lucia berlin who was relatively unknown in her lifetime and then she's kind of posthumously been recognized as one of the great american short story writers of the past you know 50 years but uh, she's got a, there's a kind of a, a, a compilation of uh, many of her stories called A Manual for Cleaning Women, which is just incredible. Um, you know, I don't know how many people have given it as a gift to. Um, if you knew someone and they were kind of ambivalent about the short story as an art form and they didn't know where to begin, I, I'd give them a copy of uh, George Saunders' collection, 10th of December, because there are you know it, it, it's a collection and at least three of the stories in there are like solid masterpieces of the form you know just unimpeachable works of the highest order you can decide which three throughout this episode the examples have tended largely although not exclusively towards the literary with a capital l but being a podcast which likes to celebrate the popular genre fiction and its multifarious forms I felt I should mention that the short story is ideally suited for a number of genres of popular fiction. Dr. Marsh Russell, a critic of science fiction as well as the short story, agrees. There is that tendency, I think, within short story criticism until very recently to say, well, we're going to look at that kind of impressionistic tradition of Chekhov and Mansfield and Joyce, and that becomes the definition of the short story. And then it could completely glosses over all the short stories being published in supposedly middle brow magazines, you know, the Strand magazine, what have you. Um, you know, that's actually, that's where most short stories were published and indeed are still published. Um, there's, there's, there's a great, uh, problem, uh, something which I've talked about, you know, far too briefly, which is we don't think about women's romantic fiction, uh, which occurs in women's magazines. There's very, very little analysis of any of that, and yet uh, we're, we're sort of missing out this huge reservoir of of, of of short stories. Short stories tend not towards character so much, but towards situation. It's something Edith Wharton uh, once said, and and be- because of that, short stories are really good at thought experiments, uh, sort of speculative inquiries, or, 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 or kind of little kind of twists of logic. So again, um, science fiction is definitely one, but of course all the, the, the detective story, um, and again, we come back to, you know, uh, you know Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, you know, Doyle, uh, initially, you know, studying Scarlet wasn't a great success. You know, it was actually the short stories, the adventures of Sherlock Holmes, that actually established that character. So, it's it's and, and there the ability of Holmes was to you know come up with these amazing solutions to seemingly impossible crimes of course um, so I think it's that notion of the idea the situation the thought process really makes the short story great for science fiction detective fiction the ghost story the supernatural tale the weird tale all, all, all those things and speaking of the macabre I thought I could finish this episode and the season on something a little more gothic. Colin Walsh reading one of his stories, a piece of flash fiction, really short fiction. This story won the Flash Fiction Prize at the Doolan Writers Weekend last year. So it's called I Need, that's K-N-E-A-D, so I Need Fresh Meat with Old Hands. They came to the door with the sudden snow, panting and ruddy-eyed beneath their rucksacks, clapped eyes on my cottage and glowed at the authenticity of it all. 
newlyweds, of course. The wife looked like me once. She jabbered in broken English about how they got lost trying to find the place, while the husband smiled. I nodded and let them in. By the second day, wife had exhausted what language she had, and the three of us sat silently inside the clock ticks. We frowned together through the window into the blizzards that continued to rage across the mountains. Shared smiles of stoic commiseration as they kept themselves to themselves, waiting for the weather to clear so they could move on. It's been four days. Now we awkwardly shift past one another when we meet in the hallway. Our bodies glide as we pass exaggerated looks, strange gatherings of breath. Husband burns his mouth on his tea every morning. He curses in his language. He apologizes in his language. I smile at this to show I am on his side. He finds this cute. People their age think women my age are cute. Like a toddler. Harmless as a cat with claws removed. Husband is making a cute mammy of me. He gives big moans of approval as he slurps down the stew every lunch and dinner. He takes second helpings and I make a big show of how this pleases me. Noises of benevolent joy. This is the game people have always played. I palpate the meat for today's stew and pretend to think while I watch them. They play chess and pretend to read their books while they watch me. I smile. They smile. The hours run like slow caramel over the fire. The stew is all I serve. They must be sick of it. The second day, when I poured it again, the ghost of a wrinkle flittered across wife's mannerly face. Then she smiled and thanked me. I nodded and filled her bowl. Yesterday, I was grating parmesan into the stew when I saw her staring at Frank's boots and jacket, which are still heaped by the door. She mumbled something to husband, and husband looked over at me. When he saw that I was watching, he gave a husband grin and nodded like a simple pigeon. His grin did not crease his eyes, and I grated too much parmesan and nipped my knuckles. All night they whispered in bed, like that made a difference. Wife went to the toilet and screamed when she saw me in the dark. Husband came into the hall in a big underpants panic, but I gave him a big mammy smile. I knew they would ask me today what meat I put in the stew. And the weather is gathering itself on its hinges. And there will be more newlyweds getting lost on the mountain this afternoon. And four days is such a long time before asking. Frank would have been amazed. He would have smiled. That's it for episode 34 of Words to That Effect, and that's it for season 3. I can't believe it's been almost two years since I launched this show. If this is your first episode, or you've been listening since the early days, thank you so much. I can't tell you how much I appreciate all of the feedback and the support, the episode ideas, the generosity of all of the guests, and all the different ways that people have gotten in touch to say they enjoy the show, or just say hi. I have also been supported by a steadily growing number of patrons. 
So if you want to join the Patreon community, you can head over to patreon.com slash WTTE. So that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash WTTE. As well as lots of fun rewards and other benefits, you will also get to hear WTTE mini-episodes that I will be releasing over the summer while the show is on a break. So yeah, that's right. If you're not a patron, there will be no more words to that effect until after the summer. That's far too long to wait. Patreon.com slash WTTE. I won't be out of contact for the summer, though. I'll be sending out the newsletter. I'll be on Twitter at CEDread, C-E-D or E-I-D. And on Instagram and Facebook at words to that effect. You can use the hashtag WTTEpodcast.com if you're talking about the show. I'll also keep things up to date on the website where all the links can be found and lots of other information, including for this episode. It's WTTEpodcast.com. A huge thanks this week to my two guests. There are links to Dr. Paul March Russell's work on the short story and other areas on the website. And Colin Walsh writes fantastic short stories. You should definitely read them. I've put links to his work on the site too. Music this week was by Cloudcastle Lake, Sasso and The Jimmy Cake. And links to all of their music is on the site too. And that's it. Thanks for listening. I'm off to do lots and lots of reading and to gather together some intriguing stories for season four. See you soon. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. If you want to support this podcast and get a full ad-free episode, sign up to Headstuff Plus. Plus. 